So um, in just a few weeks, Marsha, my wife is Marsha, Marsha and my anniversary is coming up. And yes, I remember the date of my anniversary. I am a good husband. I remember that date. Um, 14 years of being married. In fact, go to that next slide. 14 years of being married together. Give it to me. Give it to me. Go to that slide. Almost there. You'll see it. There we are. Yeah. You expected that I would have like flowing locks back then, right? No, I've been bald for a long time. But there's a lot less gray in that picture. Marsha is still beautiful as ever. Uh, so 14 years that we're celebrating um, we're talking a little bit about, I do ask Marsha for permission to tell some of the stories that I tell, um, just so you know. So anyway, we were talking a little bit about this this past week, and it's funny, like, when you remember the first year of your marriage, it's funny, like, the stuff that you remember, you know, and sometimes in that first year, it's like marital bliss, you know, it's like, this is exactly what I was hoping for, this is amazing, and then sometimes I think both of us stopped and we're like, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into, you know, because you're different people, right? Like, husband, wife, you get to, guy, girl, you get to uh, married, and you're two different people with different backgrounds, different habits, different preferences, all of that stuff. And sometimes they line up really well, and then sometimes they don't line up really well. And it's always interesting to me, like, thinking back about this, that first year, it's interesting to me, like, the stuff that starts to get on your nerves after a while, you know, like, you, after you first get married, at first things are sort of endearing, and it's, it's, it's often, like, little insignificant stuff that in the big picture of life and marriage is, like, meaningless, it's nothing, but as time goes on, you're like, this is really starting to annoy me. For example, uh, in our first house, Marsha and my first house, we had a, a bathroom, which is good, and we had a shower in that bathroom, and next to the shower was like a, a towel bar, you know, a little towel rack, and it wasn't a big one, maybe like this big, just enough for a folded towel. And I think we had a hook in there as well. And so Marsha is a nighttime shower person. I'm usually a morning time shower person. So she would take a shower at night, and she would drive, she'd take her towel, and instead of using the thing that it has one purpose in life to hold a towel, right? Instead of using the towel bar or the hook, she would take her towel and she would drape it over the curtain rod, right? And, and at first I didn't care. It's no big deal, right? Because I'm the next one that takes a shower. And so what I have to do is I have to remove her towel from the curtain rod and I have to fold it up and I have to put it on, on the little towel bar, right? At first that's no big deal. But as time goes on, your brain starts messing with you a little bit and you're like, man, she's so thoughtless, right? Like she is so inconsiderate. Does she have any idea how long it takes me to remove that towel when I, in the morning? I mean, that's like five seconds of my life. I am never going to get back, you know? And so I started thinking, I got to say something to her. You know, I got, I, I have to, I have to confront her. I have to correct her behavior, right? And so um, eventually I did. And I said, hey, Marsha, you know, you know, Marsha, there's a towel bar right here that the purpose of that is for you to put your towel on when you're done taking a shower, or you could even use this hook. Um, I, I'm not sure that you knew that those were there. Do you think, do you think in the future you could start using those? And she, and she, because my default was, I thought she just didn't give it any thought, you know? I, my default was, I assumed she was being inconsiderate of me, right? And so she's like, well, the reason, there's a reason, Jeff, the reason that I put my towel over the curtain rod is because if you fold it up or bunch it up on a hook, it doesn't dry properly, and then the towel gets like kind of musty, you know, and you got to wash it like every time that you use it. And so she tells me this, and as she's telling me, I'm thinking, 
oh yeah, she's actually right. She, she's given this thought. This wasn't just like something inconsiderate and thoughtless that she's done. She's not the thoughtless and considerate one. I'm the thoughtless and considerate one, right? And so you'd think after that, I would learn my lesson, you know? Like you'd think that I would, I would know, but I didn't. And so she also, um, <laughs> when she get, would get out of the shower, a curtain, you know, shower curtain, she would um, o- like close it again when she was done instead of leaving it open. And so sometimes, like I literally, I'd get in the shower right after her or even if it was the next morning and I would have to then open the shower curtain, which again, we're talking another second of my life. That's a lot of work to open that shower. So now we're talking six seconds of my life that I'm never going to get back each morning, right? And so I, I feel like I have to confront her again with this. I feel like this is Marcia's thoughtless behavior that I, as the husband, need to correct. That's what I thought, right? And so I go to her, and I'm like, listen, you know I'm getting in the shower, like, right after you. Why don't you just leave the shower curtain open, and then I don't have to open it? Like, wouldn't that make more sense? And she's like, listen, Einstein, there's a (laughs) reason. She was actually very kind about it. There's a reason that I leave the shower. Some of you know exactly where I'm going with this, right? Like, you've had this exact same conversation. There's a reason that I shut it when I'm done with it, because if you leave it all clumped up in the corner, it doesn't properly dry, and then it gets moldy. And by the way, have you ever tried to change one of those curtains, those shower curtains? you got to open all of those little hooks things it's a mess maybe you should change it next time right and so she tells me this stuff and I'm like yeah this is another thing that you have thought through way more than I have thought through again I am the thoughtless inconsiderate one and you think about that and you think about marriage and you think man marriage can be tough right like let's be honest marriage takes a lot of work there's a lot of work that goes into marriage and there's a lot of sacrifice and there's a lot of selflessness that a good marriage entails and so this morning, we're going to talk about marriage. We're doing this series on relationships, and we're going to talk about marriage. But I want to say this right at the very beginning. I want to say this. So before I was at Grace Church, I was at another church, and I, was, um, I did singles ministry. So I was like a singles pastor. I pastored uh, singles in their 20s and 30s. And so I'm very sensitive to the feelings of those that um, aren't, aren't married. And so sometimes it, it can feel like you come to church, and like church is all like catering to married people or to families or something like that. And I don't want you to feel like that this morning even though we're going to have just a raw honest conversation about marriage this morning if you sit here and you're not married or you're not in a relationship that's headed toward marriage or maybe you're not even considering marriage I don't want you to tune me out this morning because what we're going to talk about this morning is important for you as well whether it be for uh, your own future marriage if that's the the path that God has for you or maybe you know as you have conversations with people in your life whose marriages are struggling and you could speak some encouraging words words to them and give them some truth or maybe for you you know you just it, to, to help you understand the pain of that you feel because maybe your parents marriage wasn't what it was supposed to be and you got a little baggage with that and you got and you haven't processed through that whatever it is I'm really glad that you're here this morning and I hope that you um, can take in what we're talking about because I think whether we're married or we're not married it's relevant for us this morning so with that said, um, last week we started this series called It's Not You, It's Me, and we're talking about God's heart in relationships. And so last week we started off talking about friendship, right? And we said, we, we kind of looked at the value of friendships and what a good friend looks like. And we talked about what, what it would look like for us to be good friends to other people. And just real quickly, let me just in, in, in two minutes give you kind of a recap of where, where we went with this. We started off, we said friendship, what friendship is, is preferring other people over ourselves. 
There's, there's a selflessness to friendship, putting other people's needs ahead of our own. None of us want to be a friend to a selfish person, right? When, when that friendship is all about somebody else, it's not a very good friendship. And so we said, friendship is preferring other people over ourselves. Then we said, friendships, our friendships shape who we are. Whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we care or not, our friendships shape who we are. And likewise, we shape who our friends are. And so we asked the question, like, how, in what ways are we shaping our friends? Are we doing it in a positive way? Are we doing it in a negative way? And then we said, friendships make my life better, right? It's, it's interesting. You don't have to go through life with friendships, right? We don't need friendships to survive, and yet friendships make life better. Like, the life without friends, like, what kind of life is that really? And then we ended our time last week. We said, God wants to be my friend. God wants to be your friend. He loves us. We just sang about that. Right? He wants to have a deep relationship with us. And so we kind of dug into that. So that's what we talked about last week. And if you missed that, I really encourage you, maybe you sit here this morning and you're like, I uh, struggle with friendships. You know, I don't have a lot of deep, meaningful friendships in my life. I'd really encourage you to go back and to listen to that message. All, the, all that stuff's on the website. But where we started last week that I want to um, spend a few minutes on as well because I want this to be like rolling around in your head a little bit as we talk about marriage is we talked about a few sort of overarching truths in, re in regard to relationships that apply to all of our relationships in our lives, whether it's friendships like we talked about last week, marriage like we talked about uh, this week, parenting, uh, friendships with challenging people, friendships like new friendships with strangers. I think this applies to everything. So there are three things that we kind of dug in that I want you to just be aware of um, as we talk about marriage today. The first one is that God made us to be in relationships. God made us to be in relationships. So he said that you and I are made in the image of God, right? The Bible is very clear on that. And God is a relational God. And so you and I, part of being made in his image is that you and I are made for relationships. And when we don't have relationships, deep, meaningful, significant relationships in our lives, we feel it. Like we feel like something is missing with us, right? And so that's where we started off. We said God made us to be in relationships. Then the second thing that we said, and I'll say it again. I said this last week, I'll say it again. If there's one thing that we could get from this series, if we could only get one thing, I pray it's this next point because it changes everything in our lives. The gospel drives the way that I live in relationships. The gospel drives, when I get it, when I understand what the gospel is and I personalize it in my life, it drives the way that I live in relationships. And even broader than that, it drives the way that I live my life. And so he said, well, what is the gospel? And I said, it's, it's actually really simple. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It's the good news of God's unconditional love for us. God loves us deeply and unconditionally. Even though we sin, we can be ugly, right, unlovely in our lives, yet he still loves us deeply and unconditionally, so much so that he sent Jesus to, take the, to pay for our unloveliness, to take the punishment that we deserve, and then also to change us, to change me from the inside out through a relationship with him. That, that in essence, is what the gospel is. I like how a guy named Tim Keller says it. I don't think we have a slide for this, but he says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's a, that is a powerful, powerful statement. We are so deeply flawed in and of ourselves, like more than we recognize most of the time, and yet at the same time, we are so deeply and unconditionally loved by God. 
And so he said, that, the gospel, drives then how I live in relationships. So when I recognize how deeply and totally, unconditionally loved by God I am, I then can show that deep love to other people. It drives me to do that, right? When I recognize how deeply I, how much, how broadly I've been forgiven of, it then drives me to offer forgiveness to people that have hurt me in my life. Because I go, man, God has, God has forgiven me of this, this, this. Every wrong thing that I've done is not only an offense against other people, it's also an offense against God. There's nothing that anyone in my life has done more to me than what I did to God. And if God's willing to forgive me, who am I to not forgive other people? And so last week we said, man, it, what that means is we don't have a right to hold on to bitterness anymore. We don't have a right to hold on to unforgiveness anymore. Because of God, the way that he offers grace to me, I offer grace to other people. Because of how he is patient with me, I'm patient with other people. That's what the gospel is. And when we get it, it drives the way that we live in our relationships. Third thing that we said was as spiritual maturity increases, selflessness increases. Okay, so begin to think about what this means in our relationships. As spiritual maturity, as my relationship with God deepens, then my spiritual maturity grows, right? As my spiritual maturity grows, I become more selfless. Life becomes less about me. Instead, it becomes more about God and more about other people. And when I become more selfless, I become a better friend. When I become more selfless, I become a better husband to Marcia. When I become more selfless, I become a better daddy to Luke and Natalie. I become a better son. I become a whatever, right? And conversely, when my relationship with God is shallow and superficial, then I'm going to have more spiritual immaturity, right? And when I'm more spiritually immature, this is just the way that it works, I be, I'm more selfish, right? Because this world and life is much more about me. And when I'm more selfish, I'm not as good of a friend. I'm not as good of a husband. I'm not as good of a daddy. I'm not as good of a son, right? So, so I want you to just kind of allow these things to, to fester in your heart, to fester in your brain now as we start to transition and talk about marriage. So last week, friendship. This week, marriage. Um, I'd love to just be brutally honest with you here at the beginning. Marriage can make your life and my life absolutely miserable, <laughs> right? I, absolutely. I mean, just unhappy depressing, miserable. And here's what I know. Some of you have felt this, right? Some of you have been in a marriage that was absolutely miserable and it was a challenge and it was a struggle. Marriage, marriage can be, it can make life absolutely miserable. In fact, the Bible talks about this. It's funny, on Wednesdays, we, I meet with uh, some of our staff and we kind of talk about the services and we talk about the sermon and kind of where I want to go with things and I get ideas from them and stuff. And it was interesting, we were laughing at some of the things that the book, the book of Proverbs talks a ton about relationships. And we were just kind of laughing at some of the things that Proverbs says about marriage. Um, so like Proverbs 19.13 says, a foolish child is a father's ruin and a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I would also substitute husband in there as well. A quarrelsome husband can be the same way. Proverbs twenty six twenty one says, as charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife and nowhere more than in marriage, right? How about this? Uh, Proverbs twenty one nineteen: better to live in the desert, in a desert, than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife or a husband, right? 
uh, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. I know that about marriage can be uh, really tough. Like it can make life really, really challenging. Or marriage, on the other hand, can help make life absolutely wonderful. And many of you know this too. Many of you, you sit here this morning, you are in a great marriage. And you're like, no, actually marriage makes my life better. It enhances my life. And the Bible is really clear on this as well. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Like it's a blessing from the Lord. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. I like this one. There's three things that are too amazing for me. Four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a young man, I'm sorry, with a man with a young woman. Ah, it's beautiful, right? Like relationships and marriage can be beautiful. And so marriage can be one, it can be miserable, right? Or it can be wonderful. And if you're like me, you ask the question, you hear that and you think of the question and you're like, well, okay, if life, if marriage can be miserable or marriage can be really good and wonderful, how do I stay away from having a miserable marriage and how do I have a wonderful marriage? And if that's the question that you ask me, my answer to you would be to do marriage the way that God says to do marriage. Like sometimes we can look at what God says in the Bible and it's like, oh, it's so restrictive. God just says these things to make my life difficult. That's not true. God actually says these things because this is the way to live the fullest life, the best life, the most wonderful life, right? And so maybe you ask, okay, well then what does that look like? What does it look like to do marriage the way that God says to do marriage? I think we can, um, I think we can understand God's heart for marriage by looking at one passage of scripture together. There's lots of different places we can go, but I think one in particular can help us understand God's plan for marriage. So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, please open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. If, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have a table full of them back there. If you throw your hand up, we will bring you a Bible. We're also going to throw the stuff on the screens as well. So um, this book of Ephesians that we're going to jump into, I want to give you a little bit of context here before, before we start reading. So it was written to Christians in Ephesus. So that's where the name comes from. It's written to Ephesian Christians in Ephesus. And so a guy named Paul was writing. Paul was an early uh, he was a, an apostle. He was an early leader in the church. And this passage that we're going to look at, uh, this section that we're going to look at, is, is just Paul talking about marriage and what marriage should look like. And he uses a word in this passage that um, I've seen uh, is, is so misunderstood and misapplied in our culture today. Okay? And that word is submission. Submission. So we're going to break down what Paul's telling us. And, and really, he does it in three chunks here, okay? So first, he talks broadly about submission to everyone else, to other people, right? To all people. And then he gets specific, and he talks about what it looks like in marriage. And so he talks about what submission looks like with wives. And then he talks about what submission looks like with husbands as well. And so as we dig into this, like I don't, I, I'll ask you here in a second, I don't know what goes through your mind when you think of the word submission, but as we dig into this, I'd really encourage you to, um, to do it with an open mind and an open heart to try to understand what God's design, what God's plan is for marriage for us, okay? So, so this is what it says. We'll start off in verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21. So Paul writes, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to stop right there, all right? What's the very first word that Paul uses in that sentence? Submit. 
That's the very first word that he uses, exactly where he starts. I wonder what comes to mind to you as you sit here this morning and you hear that word submit. Because depending on your background, depending on your experiences, that word can mean very different things to different people. It can bring up different thoughts and, and, and kind of pictures or metaphors of what uh, submission looks like. So someone might hear that word, some of us might hear that word submission, and the first thing that we think of is like a parent-child relationship. You know, I think of how a child is supposed to submit to their parent. They're supposed to submit to their parent's authority. They're supposed to listen to them. They're supposed to obey them. When I say submit, maybe that's the first image that comes to your mind, a parent and a child. Maybe for, for others of us, the first image that comes to mind with submission is like a slave and a master. And we have a very different view of submission. We have more of a cold oppressive, unquestioning view of submission. Like a slave is supposed to do everything that the master says, no questions asked. Maybe that's your view of, of what submission is. Maybe others of us, it reminds us of our military days. And we think of a, of a soldier being in submission to their commanding officer, right? Like somebody who's rank, who ranks higher than you, you have to do what they say. You're in submission to their authority. Right? Well, I probably all have different things. When I think of the word, my, my first thought when I think of the word submission is I think of two guys beating the pulp out of each other in an octagon ring, and one has one like in an arm bar, and he's about to snap his arm like this, and the guy's got to tap out or submit. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. See, for some, we're all different, right? Some of us, when you think of submission, you think of listening to your parents. Some of us think of snapping arms when we think of submission. That's just how it works, right? We're all different. It's interesting, that word that we translate as submit in the Greek, in the original language, is hippotasso. It's hippotasso. That's actually the root of the word. And what that word was, originally, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a military word. It's a military term that meant to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. That's what it meant. So essentially, to put troops in submission under their commander. That's what the word meant. However, it wasn't just used in military terminology. Like here, for example, it's used differently. And, and, and when it's, we're not talking about military, here's what it means. I want you to just listen to this. Like just begin to take this in as Paul is talking to us about submission and what submission looks like in our lives. It means, to, uh, it means a voluntary attitude, voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming a responsibility right? Like, like uh, something that no one wants to do. You go, I'll do it. I'll do it, right? Of carrying a burden, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So essentially what it means is to subordinate or to subject myself to someone else or to yield myself to someone else. That's what that word means, to put other, voluntarily, right? I choose to put other people before me. So let's understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying we're to choose voluntarily. Again, this is just in general with other people. We're to choose voluntarily to give in to others, to subordinate ourselves to others, to yield to others, to put ourselves aside. Why? What, like, what, what drives that? Did you catch it here? Reverence for Christ, right? Out of reverence for Christ, I choose to put myself aside and put other people ahead of me. You know what that sounds an awful lot like? It sounds an awful lot like the gospel drives the way that I live in relationships. When I understand how God has laid himself down for me, 
It drives the way that I lay myself down for other people. That, that last part, out of reverence for Christ, is really important because that's the motivation for it, right? Why do I, why do I put my own self-interest aside? Because of Christ, out of reverence for him, because I recognize how much he's done that for me in my life. It also sounds a whole lot like selflessness driven by spiritual maturity, right? Which we talked about earlier. So Paul says, let's read it again. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's he saying there? Makes sense. So out of my love and reverence for Jesus, I'm to voluntarily put other people's needs ahead of my own. So Paul says, it's tough, right? But we get it. At least conceptually, we can understand it. Let's go on. Let's look what he says about wives. So that's generally, now he talks about what that looks like in the marriage covenant. He starts with wives. Wives, this is verse 22, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay. Let's see what he's saying here. Like, just hear me out. Let's just understand what he's saying. What's he saying? Wives, out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Jesus, that's the motivation, right? That's what drives us. He's saying, voluntarily put your husband's needs ahead of your own, right? He's saying, submit yourself to, to your husband the same way that you submit yourself to Jesus. That's what he says. And, and I don't, again, I don't know what's going through your head, did you hear that? Especially ladies, I don't know what you're, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. It's hard, right? That's challenging, whether it's in the marriage relationship or any other relationship. It's challenging to put ourselves aside and lift up other people's needs ahead of our own, right? And then, so that's submission. Then Paul talks about headship in this passage as well, doesn't he? And it seems to me that Paul gives us some sort of, of structure for our families here. And so some would understand what Paul's saying here to be specific to the time period that Paul was in and that it should look different today, right? And they're like, well, yeah, well, that was like thousands of years ago in a, different, in a male-dominated society, a male-dominated culture. It looks different today. That's, a, that's some people's perspective of this. Others, like myself, would understand this as more of a, a, a timeless structure that God gives us for families. But let me say this, and this is really important. I think we have a misunderstanding of what submission and headship is. Headship, uh, and, I'll, and I'll describe it in more detail as we talk about husbands here, because we're, we're next, guys. But headship that, that Paul's talking about is never meant to be oppressive. Headship that Paul's talking about is never meant to be cruel. The headship that Paul's talking about is never meant to be uh, like tyranny, tyrannical. It's never meant to be a dictatorship. Godly headship that Paul's talking about here that I, that I personally believe that he calls all husbands to always helps the other person become all that they want to be, all that God has designed them to be. Godly headship is not pushing people down, restricting people, oppressing people, Godly headship as God has designed it in the marriage is lifting the others up of which I'm the head. That's what godly headship is. And that's a very different perspective than a slave and a master. You're gonna do just what I said. And godly headship does not mean inequality either. Okay, when we talk about headship, we're all, the Bible's really clear with that. We're all equal in God's eyes, right? 
He talks about that in lots of different passages. Galatians 3.28 is one of them. And it can look different. When we talk about headship and what that looks like in a relationship, it's going to look different depending on who the couple is. It can, should, and will look different depending on who the couple is. Why? Because couples have different strengths. Each person has different strengths. Each person has different weaknesses. Each person has different personalities. And that's how God made us, right? And so there's a ton of freedom in our relationships, in our marriage, of what this looks like. So let me recap. Godly headship is not oppressive. It's not the husband pushing somebody down. Godly headship doesn't mean inequality. That's not what it is. And it's going to look different depending on who the couple is, right? And so what does it look like? Like, what is it supposed to look like in a marriage? What, is it, what does this look like for a husband to be the head? Well, let's look at it. This is what Paul says. This is, uh, for me personally, one of the most challenging passages uh, in my life. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And guys, I don't know, especially if you sit here this morning and you're married, I don't know how you read that. I don't know what, what you feel when you read that. But I uh, think, wow, it's really hard. Like those, are, those are really, really strong words. So, so what is Paul saying that um, the, marriage, the, the husband's responsibility in marriage should look like? What does headship look like for the husband? Oppression? No. Tyranny? No. A dictatorship? No. Getting his way always? Pushing the other, pushing his wife down? No, it's none of those things. What does it look like? Sacrifice. Selflessness. Helping my wife become all that God has designed her to be. Building her up, lifting her up. Unconditional love. Guys in the room, just... Just think about whether, so I, I know we got like some high schoolers in here and some younger ones in here. And I know like marriage is probably not even on your radar right now. But I'd love for all of us, especially us guys, to think in the future, like think what this looks like, the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. Like we talk about this regularly around here. The deep, unconditional love. The sacrificial love. The, the willing to give it all love. The willing to lay down his life love. Guys, that is the kind of love that God calls husbands to. That's the kind of love he wants us to love our wives with. And so my job as husband is to love and serve Marcia. This is what headship looks like. My job as husband is to love and serve Marcia. My job is to build Marcia up and help her to become all that God has designed her to be. Not just what I want her to be, but all that God has designed her to be. My job with Marcia is to help protect her. My job is to support her the best I can. My job is to help provide for her and our family the best that I can. And it's to put selfishness aside and it's to put her needs ahead of me. Husbands, that's, that's what we're called to. That's what headship looks like. It's in no way domineering. It's, it's my way or the highway. That's garbage. It's selflessness. It's putting our wives ahead of ourselves and literally be willing to lay down my life for my wife. I'd, I'd encourage you, I, I don't know where you're at in your marriages, 
I encourage you to uh, process through that a little bit, both husbands and wives, what those responsibilities are. Paul really sums it up in verse 33. He says, however, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And I read that, and I do. I think that there's something powerful and very intentional about Paul's choice of words here. He talks about a husband's call to love his wife, right? And the wife's call to love her husband. And of course, you know, the husband should also respect his wife. That's obvious, right? And the wife should also love her husband. But it does seem to me that, that, that most women, and I, you know, I, I hate to say all, but most women have a really strong, deeply felt need to be loved, to be cherished, especially by their husbands. Like on their, on their list of needs, the need scale, that is right at the top. And I do think that most men have a really strong need to feel deeply respected and honored by their wives. More than anything else on our need scale, that's at the top. Maybe not everybody, but most guys. That's how we're wired. A, a guy named uh, Emerson Egerichs wrote a book, probably some of you have read, uh, uh, really about this verse, about this section of scripture called Love and Respect. It's really good. Um, if you're like wanting to dig in a little bit more with this, it's a real popular book. I encourage you to check it out. But one of the things that he says in this book that I thought was really interesting is he says, his love, the husband's love, motivates her respect. And her respect motivates his love, right? When he loves her, it motivates her to respect him. And as she respects him, it motivates him to love her more. And I think that's true. I think it's cyclical, Right? I think that's how God designed it to be. See, guys, I think marriage, when done right, it, it has this beautiful love for one another. Husband and wife, deeply, unconditionally, selflessly loving each other. It's got this beautiful mutual respect, right? We deeply honor and respect each other. And it's got this beautiful mutual submission. Submission is a requirement on both sides. Both husband and wife lay themselves down and say, I'm going to lift you up. It's not about me anymore. It's about you. And when we see a marriage that way, like when we see a beautiful marriage that way, like think of, think of a, a, a couple that um, has this incredible marriage. We look at them, especially if they're Christians, we look at them and we go, that is actually a beautiful expression of the gospel, right? Marriage done right is an expression of the gospel, that's what it is. Think about it. One, the husband submitting and sacrificing his life for the sake of the other. Just like Jesus became a servant for us, setting down his own life, his own will for his love for humankind, sacrificing himself so that we could be all that God designed us to be. That's what husbands do, right? That's what Jesus did as well. And the other, the wife, submitting herself, really dying to herself for the sake of the other, willing to put the other's agenda ahead of her own. Why? Because she is deeply loved by her husband and she deeply loves him and is committed to him. It's not forced, it's chosen. She, she puts his needs ahead of hers, just like the church submits to Christ, right? That's, that's what the gospel is. And when marriage is done right, that's also what marriage is. Marriage done right is an expression of the gospel. You guys remember that, um, that movie? I was thinking about it as I, as I was saying at the first two services. I think it's probably 20 years old. Remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Remember that movie? So there, there's a point in that movie toward the end, like the climax of the movie, where um, in the first service I was like, I don't remember their character's name. I don't remember Tom Cruise's name. 
And someone after service is like, it's Jerry Maguire. It's the name of the movie, Knucklehead. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. But, but Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire, kind of confesses his love for Renee Zellweger's character. Remember this? And then he recites one of the most iconic lines in movie history. Remember what it is? You complete me. <laughs> he just hits you right here, right? I mean, it just gets you. Listen, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, I know I sound cynical right now, but hear me out. That is the dumbest thing. That is, that is the most untrue thing I have ever heard in my life. Guys, we can be so easily, easily brainwashed into thinking that someone else is going to complete us. Like, someone else is going to make us whole, and that never happens. There is nobody that's going to complete me. I love Marcia with all my heart. She doesn't complete me. She doesn't make me whole. Why? Because that's something, that void, that, that part that's missing is something that only God can fill, right? And so when, when you know, we're looking at somebody to fill that void in our life, they will fall short every time. They will disappoint us every time. And if we don't change our perspective and looking to them to make us complete and fill that void, that relationship that we're in with them will fail every time. Why? Because they can't fill the void. They weren't made to. Their shape doesn't fill the shape of the void that we have in our hearts. I said earlier, I, I, I was a singles pastor. I, you do lots of weddings. You do tons of weddings as a single pastor. I've done tons of weddings, which means you do lots of premarital counseling. And in my premarital counseling, I tell them that, that your marriage relationship is the second most important relationship in your life. Don't try to make your spouse God to you. God fills the God role in your life. Your spouse cannot. They, can, they will fail you every time. They'll wake up with bad breath. They'll, do wrong, they'll leave the shower curtain open when you want it closed. Right, they're going to fail you every single time. I like how a guy named Tim Keller says it. He says it way more eloquently than me. He says, if we look to our spouses to fill up our tanks in a way that only God can, we're demanding an impossibility. They, they can't fill it, Right? Only God can fill those tanks. Only God can complete us and make us whole. In fact, there's no other relationship, even beyond the marriage, there's no other relationship that can do that. What it does, what marriage does, and we talked about this a little bit last week in the context of friendship, but what marriage does, it can't make us whole, but it can make us holy, right? Marriage doesn't make us whole, it makes us holy. And here, here's what I mean by that. If we do marriage the way that God desires that we do marriage, we become more like him, right? Like if we do marriage the way that he says to do marriage, we become more holy. We become less selfish. We become less prideful. We become less forgiving. We become less vengeful, right? Marriage is like this crucible for our growth and our spiritual maturity. It's this context for us to live this out, to live out the gospel that we're saying, it's changing my life. It's changing my life. Here's a context for it to change our life. And if we try to live out, if we try to live in that relationship as a result of the gospel, the gospel driving that, it makes us holier. It makes us more like Jesus. There's a selflessness to it. In that meeting I was talking about with, uh, with the staff, talking about the services, uh, John, who, John Case, who leads worship for us, will be up here in just a second. John, when he, he said, when I, when I talk to young people about marriage, like people that are thinking about marriage, he's like, I refer to marriage as a death pact. <laughs> or death covenant. And you're like, that is really morbid, John. Like, what exactly do you mean by that? And he doesn't mean that, you know, when you get married, it's like you're signing your, your death certificate. That's not what he's talking about. 
He's saying when we get married, we choose to die to ourselves. The old me is saying, I, the, the old selfish me, we choose, we're killing, right? And the new selfless me that Jesus is building up inside of us, that's who we become. In order for marriage to work the way that God designed it to work, we have to have this selflessness, this dying to ourself. So marriage doesn't make us whole, but it makes us holy. Let, let me end with this. Let me end with, with um, one more point that you already know. Let me tell you something that you already know, but if you're like me, it's really easy to forget. Here's what it is. My marriage affects other people. My marriage affects other people. In fact, if you sit here this morning and you're married, I would love for you to repeat that with me. Ready? My marriage affects other people. And I hope you believe that. Do you believe that? I hope you believe it because it's true. Just, just listen to me for a second. When you're fighting in your marriage, it inevitably affects other people. Sometimes we think, yeah, you know, I can like compartmentalize it and then I can go about my life and no one really knows that I'm struggling in my marriage. Guys, it's not true. People know. People see the little, the little jabs that we take at our wives. People see the little ways that our wives don't respect our husbands. Right? People see that. When, when I'm frustrated in my marriage, it inevitably affects other people. When I choose to have an affair in my marriage, it inevitably affects other people, not just my spouse, not just me, not just my family. Much broader than that, when I choose divorce in my marriage, it inevitably affects other people. See, guys, here's the truth. Marriage often gets a bad rap in our culture today because of how other people's marriages have disappointed us. You with me on that? We look at other people's marriages. Maybe it's our parents. Our parents' marriage, I think, can be the most hurtful and destructive to us. But we look at other people's marriage and we go, marriage is about fighting it's about cussing at each other. It's about not trusting each other, not having any fun with each other, arguing with each other. That's what marriage is like. I've seen it up close and personal. Therefore, I don't want to have anything to do with marriage. Like, that's not for me. That's, I don't, if that's what marriage is, I don't want it, right? Instead of my marriage being an expression of the gospel. And so let me end by just asking you a couple questions. Let me, let me start with people who aren't yet married, who aren't married that are sitting here. Here's my first question. In what ways have other people's marriages shaped your view of marriage? Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's siblings, maybe it's close friends or friends' parents or grandparents. In what ways have other people's marriages shaped your view of marriage? And are there any things that you've got to work through with that? Like we all have baggage in different ways. For some of us, maybe our baggage is we have a real distorted view of marriage because of what we've witnessed, what we've observed in other people's marriages. How is your view of marriage shaped by other people? My second question is, if you're thinking about marriage in the future, what kind of marriage do you want to have? You, do you want to have a, a godly marriage, the kind of marriage that God calls us to, that God shows us? Or do you want to have something else? And if it's a godly marriage... What kind of partner do you think you need to have in order to have that godly marriage, right? If you're married and you sit here, let me ask you the same first question. In what ways have other people's marriages shaped your view of marriage that maybe you have taken into your marriage right now? And you hear what I'm saying this morning and you're like, well, that's really not what I was taught or that's not how I live or that's not what I have observed that maybe you need to process through and work through. 
My second question to you is, what kind of gospel is your marriage preaching? Our marriage is preaching something to people that see it, right? What kind of gospel is my marriage preaching to everybody else that sees me, that sees how I interact with my spouse, how I care for them, how I love them, how I don't nag them, how I don't try to change them? What kind of gospel is your marriage preaching?